So when the Federal Reserve is talking about a digital currency, what they're saying is we're going to give universal names for every piece of money electronically so that if it's sitting at Wells Fargo and you want to move it to Citigroup, they just say, we're moving this number to you, this ID number to you, and it just gets moved over to the other bank. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Uh, good morning again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. And welcome back to another exciting episode of the Personal Wealth Coach. It's exciting if you believe that talking about the intricate transactions of the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee will keep you stimulated and on the edge of your, st- your seat. Well, interested, if you will. Ah, yes. Bad puns. Mm -hmm. I should have given that as one of my disclosures the first hour. I enjoy bad puns and dad jokes. I don't like April Fool's Day because I feel like April Fool's Day is the kind of jokes that are all about lying to each other, fooling each other. I don't like that. I'm just a weirdo in that way. Maybe it's the spectrum thing. Probably that. Yes. All right. Um, Last hour, we talked about a lot of scary stuff. What's going on in the economy? What would happen if the federal uh, government doesn't raise the debt ceiling and what's happening at social security? Another thing we talked about last hour was shadow banking. And I'm going to bring up a weird one. Twitter. Shadow banking? What? Elon Musk this week spoke at a conference. And at the conference, uh, he said, well, I guess it was late last week. Um, At the conference, he said that there's a big, big plan coming up. He thinks that Twitter is going to be a banking transaction company as well as the platform that it currently is. And this is kind of going back to his original roots, X.com, PayPal. X.com merged with another company to become PayPal, and then they sold it to eBay. And his original intention was was to uh, have it be a an organization that is a real-time payment depository organization talking about shadow banking. Originally, PayPal was 100% shadow bank. So he intends to put Twitter there. That's his long-term plan for Twitter is to make it into a financial instrument as well as a place where you post about politics and what you're eating today. Well, I guess that's Instagram. Well, I guess that's Facebook. No, I guess that's TikTok. Oh, it's all of them. Yep. Instagram, PayPal. Yep, all the same now. It's an interesting concept that what he wants to do there. Whether or not that's the long term that actually happens is a big question. He's, he's introduced a lot of ideas that didn't he didn't move forward with. He comes up with a lot of ideas. Some of them are fantastic and some of them don't pan out. So, He said, I think it's possible to become the biggest financial institution in the world. He was at a Morgan Stanley conference when he said it. He said he wants to diversify Twitter um, out of just ads. Uh, 90% of its sales were ad-related. The rest of it was the selling of information about the people so that other ads would be there. Uh, And he wants to get out of just doing ads. I can understand that. After he bought the place, a lot of the advertisers left. So he wants to diversify to something he understands. He's got the ability, possibly, to do that. That leads to another subject. The subject that 
a lot of people are very confused about. A digital currency for the United States, the digital dollar. What is that? How is it? Last week, I spoke a lot about the history of banking. I didn't cover the earliest part of the United States. Early in the United States, there were a series of laws passed. Number one, they instituted the first national bank of the United States. It had a 10-year life span where it was the only bank allowed to do business across state lines. It was a completely private bank, not owned in any way or controlled in any way by the U.S. government. It was basically just giving them a 10-year license to be the interbank, an interstate bank, the only one. And after the 10 years, it took a few years for us to do it again, and inflation was starting to get weird. And so Congress said, oh, we better do something and they instituted the second national bank of the United States. Again, they said, we're going to extend this contract. We'll give it 10 years and we'll keep extending it. And they actually did. They, for a while, they kept extending it. And then Andrew Jackson fought that. Um, back at the second national bank period, the states in the United States, the state governments instituted banks. They created state banks. And that's where a lot of the money was coming from back then. And in, in direct reality, the currency was based differently. We had at one point eight different currencies in the United States. They were all called the dollar, but they were issued by different banks and they were considered bank paper. It wasn't until about 1864, Abraham Lincoln signed into effect what amounted to the comptroller of the currency who said, we have $1. Andrew Biddle and Andrew Jackson, I really recommend you guys look that up. The banking war is really cool because it led to the collapse, the panic of 1837. There's a lot of really good stuff to think about in there. But to come forward to today, we have $1 now. It's been that way since 1864. $1. What is a digital dollar? Well, if you have deposits at any bank and you go online to check the deposits, you have digital money. Now, it's not issued by the United States government. Ooh, that's weird. If you're at Wells Fargo, it's issued by Wells Fargo. If you have three accounts at Wells Fargo and you want to transfer money from one account to another, it's instant. It's called journaling because it's all inside the same system. They're using the same digital representative of money. Each dollar has a name, if you will. It's an ID number. So every dollar is individually known inside the bank. Every penny is individually known inside the bank. When you transfer money from your savings account to your bank to your checking account, it happens as soon as you do it. Now, if you're transferring from Wells Fargo to Citigroup, it may take three or four days to get there. And if it's a big enough number, it may take two weeks for the bank to allow you to touch it because Citigroup has a different standard, a different set of names for its dollars. Those ID numbers are different at Citigroup because they're not looking at what Wells Fargo called it. They're looking at what they call it. They have their own software, their own standard on what each dollar is called. What the digital currency would be, would be the Federal Reserve would say, no, you guys don't each have to give them your own individual names. We're going to give each dollar its own name. They already do that in the paper money. It's got a serial number on it. That serial number means this is an individual thing. When it's deposited at that bank, that serial number doesn't change. It gets put into a, 
a strong box or a, a vault, but your money isn't that money anymore. It's the electronic representative of money. It's whatever that you have electronically in there, and it's got an ID on it. So when the Federal Reserve is talking about a digital currency, what they're saying is we're going to give universal names for every piece of money electronically so that if it's sitting at Wells Fargo and you want to move it to Citigroup, they just say, we're moving this number to you, this ID number to you. And it just gets moved over to the other bank because it has an ID number. They know it's there. If you go to the bank and you have $10,000 in cash and you deposit it, it's available same day because it has ID numbers on all of it. They know that money's real if it's not counterfeit, and they check for that. So they know this money's real. It's immediately available. So what the Federal Reserve is doing is not a major deal. It's actually a very boring accounting mechanism to say, all right, let's name all the money at a, at a universal sense. If you go back to the DVD wars between Blu-ray and so on, we came to a standard so that each DVD would play on all the DVD players. Otherwise, it would only play on Sony or it would only... That's, the, that's what a digital currency is. It isn't suddenly all the banks become irrelevant. It isn't suddenly there's no paper cash. That has happened in places. In India, they have gotten rid of the higher denomination notes because they want it deposited at a bank to be used as a digital currency. And that's what a lot of people think is going to happen here, what's happened in India and in China. It's a different system there. China's shadow banking system is near the majority of its banking because all the banks in China are state-owned banks. And when we say, well, that's very communist. Remember, in the United States, that's how we started too, except for the first national bank and then the second national bank. Those were private institutions, but the state banks were state-owned. Now, there were a lot of private banks that came in as well, but this is, at that point, those would have been considered shadow banks because they didn't have regulations. This is fascinating stuff. As we move forward, we decide after a certain number of crises, oh, we better regulate that. And anything not regulated falls out of it. That's a shadow of something. When we're looking today at what's going to happen in a year in Congress over banking, I, I suspect that Congress is going to pass some kind of a banking act in the next 12 months, because this is such a big part of the news for at least a month now. It's going to be a big part of the news going forward, and that's what moves Congress. They say, oh, this is an important thing, and it's very popular to talk about right now, and so we want to get reelected. We're going to deal with this problem. They could have dealt with it in advance, or they could have not removed the regulations that were there. There's a balancing act that is always there. It's like the Laffer curve, regulation versus unregulated. If, if you have money at a bank that has no insurance and it's unregulated, and you say, that's fine because they're paying me lots of interest. Just go back in time a couple of years and look at what was happening in the crypto world. And you say, it's safe, it's fine, it's never collapsed this year or today, it's never collapsed. Then come forward a few years after the collapse and suddenly all the regulators are saying, oh, we got to go in there and regulate that stuff. Well, they were sort of hinting at it before, but now they have the backing of the people that were involved who lost money and don't know how to get it back. That's when we come in and regulate. We don't, unfortunately, we don't think of all the things that could go wrong and regulate against them. That would be, a, a, fortunately, maybe we don't do that because then we would have so many regulations, nobody would be able to move. 
if you think about everything that could possibly ever go wrong and make a regulation to prevent it. Thankfully, that's not where we are. But at the same time, we have this balance of we need to make sure that there's laws on the books to prevent things like murder and breaking of other people's stuff and taking of other people's stuff. But when you start getting to the point where you're preventing trade with the regulations and it's harder to do business with the regulations, then you have to start the balancing act. A great example of this. If you're living in a major metropolitan area, you probably have much stricter regulatory requirements on any addition to your home, who puts in your water heater, how your air conditioning is installed. And yet, if you get farther away from the major centers, those regulations start to fall by the wayside where, oh, you can just put in your own water heater. You can... Because nobody's there to say no. Uh, there are rules that get into place as we come forward in time. Some of those rules make sense. Some of them really need to be updated so that they're not breaking us where we are now. New technology comes along and changes what regulations should be, but bureaucracy doesn't change at the same speed. So that's the sort of thing that we have to have active deregulation going at the same time that we have active regulation. The global financial crisis of 2007 through 9 came about because we removed the, the ability or we, we took away the, the banning of the ability of commercial banks and investment banks to own each other, to be merged together, to do the same business. Way back in the Great Depression, we said it's a really good idea for your deposits not to be invested in the stock market because when the stock market crashes then the bank loses all of its deposits that's not cool so the banking act glass steagall comes out we revoked it and said now you guys can own each other we haven't had a big banking issue for nearly 100 years we're fine and it caused a new group of securities to be formed the mortgage-backed securities that weren't fannie mae and freddie mac and they were packaged by the in investment banks that now had direct access to them at the initiation point through the con commercial banks. You went to get a mortgage, you can immediately take that mortgage and package it and sell it to investors. That caused a new way of doing business to exist and we didn't know how to regulate it yet. We didn't know how to limit who could have insurance on what, how many times you could repackage it. And that led to a crisis followed by, oh, you can't do that stuff. So we need this constant deregulation on one side to prevent new, new, to preserve new growth and innovation and a constant regulation of the new growth and innovation to keep it from damaging the public. This is the job of government. <laughs> Unfortunately, we have a lot harder time removing regulations than putting in new regulations. But sometimes when we do it too fast, it can cause real problems. So in 2018, we changed the Dodd-Frank Act to now say these middle-sized banks aren't regulated the same way as the big banks because it's putting too much stress on them. It's the, they have to have a department just to do the tests. And that's a big drain on their revenue. So let's just make the big banks, the ones that are too big to fail, they'll knock down all the dominoes. Well, now we're saying, well, these little banks could knock down the dominoes too. These middle-sized banks could do it too. Well, we said it right after the global financial crisis. And then we said, no, 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 no. This is part of our normal day-to-day. -day. And, and like I said, I expect another banking law in the next 12 to 24 months because this is such a big deal. We may go back to regulating banks above $100 billion 
are above 200 billion or instead of 250. These tweaks have to continually be done. Is this political science? Is this economics? What is this? Well, we don't really have a good term for it. It all interacts. It's behavior. It's the same thing that happened to the Dutch in the 1600s. And you, there's no point in history where it hasn't happened. This is our normal behavior. And I think we're better at it today than we were 100 years ago. By far, we at least have a single currency. <laughs> um, and, and the banks are regulated in a way that is slightly better. It's easier to regulate in a digital currency. But here's another thing, and there's a lot of privacy concerns about this. Well, now the government's going to be able to track the money flow if we have a digital currency. Because those numbers are going to be the same from Wells Fargo to Citigroup to J.P. Morgan Chase. It's, we can follow the money from one place to another. Money laundering becomes a lot harder. So nefarious deeds are prevented. But at the same time, at some point in the future, the government may cause things that we don't think of as nefarious today to be nefarious. So they could have more control on what's going on. That's true. But it's true as long as you're using a dollar. There used to be a kind of bond that was issued by almost all companies called a bearer bond. We still call a bond rate the coupon rate. The reason why is because you've got a sheet of paper with little perforated patches at the bottom, kind of like what you see when, when people have a bulletin board and they're looking for a roommate and they have these little rip-off pieces at the bottom that have the phone number on it. The coupons used to be ripped off of a bond and you would present them for your money. There's no digital about this whatever. You didn't have to prove anything except holding that coupon. Like a dollar gave you the money. It was called a bearer bond. And a lot of nefarious money was moved around with bearer bonds. So the regulators eventually said, hey, there's no reason for us to have bearer bonds. You should know who you owe money to. If somebody dies and they've got all their coupons in a garbage bag because that's their storage method and, and their heirs come and throw it all out, you still owe those people even if they don't know it. So the regulator said, let's get rid of bearer bonds. You don't issue those anymore. You need to keep a record of who you owe money to. Well, that seems reasonable, but it also means that now the government can track your money. Anytime we digitize and make things easier in trade, it also makes it easier to regulate. It's just a simple fact. So Will we overregulate this? I think digital currency is a fantastic concept. The ability to move money from one place to, a, to another instantly will cause businesses to come up with all kinds of better ways of approaching things. It, it, it just makes the whole system more efficient. The more friction you have on the movement of things from one place to another, anybody that's ever run a business and you've had to wait for money to be deposited for you to be able to make payroll. That's horrible. An example, you're a relatively large business for a small business. Say you have 50 employees. I'm going to just make up, you're making um, computers. You're putting computers together and you're selling them to businesses. And you, you take all the parts and you put them together and you say, this is for you. And then they pay you, but they pay you 90 days sometimes after they make the order. No, that's not the normal model anymore. Usually they pay at the time and you have time to deliver. But on a big purchase, it may take 90 days for you to be issued money. Then the money arrives and your bank says, well, this is a large amount of money. 
you just got paid $8 million for whatever reason, and we're going to have to sit on this for two weeks before you can touch it. Well, if you were counting on that for payroll, you're up a stump. You have to go get a loan, generally a short-term loan, but right now short-term loans are really high interest. So the bank profits, maybe even the same bank profits by not letting you touch that money. But at the same time, they don't want that money to be touched if it's going to bounce because then they're on the hook for whatever you paid out of that account. And if they already dispersed the money to whomever you wrote the check to, and then they realize the money's not really there, that's not a good thing. So this digitization is a really cool, it's, it's very much like blockchain. It's the ability for us all to know this money has moved from there to here so that if somebody, this is a great, another great example. One of the big things that's out there right now is it's popping up in the news a lot is that houses that don't have people living in them, either in an estate or somebody's moved and they need to come back and fix it up and sell it, have people move into them that believe that they have the right to do it because they signed a rental agreement with somebody that didn't own the house. How do you know that the person you're renting from has the right to rent that building to you when you go into it? How do you know that? If you're going to an apartment complex and you're dealing with the management company, that's easy. If you're renting a house, how do you know the person you're renting from owns the house? That's really hard. Not if we have a digital tracker that says, yes, this contract is based on my ownership of the house. It's hard to spoof that. So more digitization causes us to not lose our properties, causes us to make sure that we have access to money at all times, even if we're moving it from one institution to another. At one point, you used to take the withdrawal 100% in cash and you would move it to the other bank and deposit it. There's a lot of danger there. You've got to transport that money from one bank to another to make sure it's available immediately on withdrawal. How do we do that and remove the danger? Well, you have to let the banks know that they're really moving money that exists. And I think I've probably kicked that horse enough times. This subject is near and dear to my heart. And there's a lot of people that are looking at it as this is going to destroy the banking system. The ba Why would you even have money at a bank if you had digital currency? The answer to that is pretty simple. If you want to have an interest rate on the money that you have deposited, you have to have an institution that's willing to pay you. That's the same. Why do people have a bank today if you could just put it in a box? You could put the cash in a box in a safe in your own house. You don't make any interest on that. And it's not easy to pay your bills with it. All right. I have one from Don. How many people will be collecting Social Security in 11 years? How many will die off and how many will come on in 11 years? As the baby boomers die, who... Uh, will less be collecting. Wow. Um, sounds like I'm the death panel. How many people will die? Well, we've got life expectancy reports and the social security. It, it, the, you see a big lump of baby boomers. The, there's like demographically this lump that's moving along as they're aging. And one of the big things that's happening right now as a percentage of the workforce, they're becoming a smaller and smaller percentage. As a percentage of the home buyers, they're right up at the largest generation right now. Home sellers and home buyers, baby boomers. There are about uh, 50, just over 50% of the home sellers right now are baby boomers and just over 30% are buyers. So what is that? Well, a lot of times they're selling a house to move to a community living facility. 
Other times they're selling a house to downsize. Sometimes they're upsizing. So in 11 years, a good chunk of them will not be around anymore, but still a big chunk will. And I'm not going to go out into the uh, life expectancy tables. Less baby boomers will be in the social security system in 11 years than there are today. Um, the, the question of how many, that's going to depend on a lot of stuff. Um, with the projections are showing these nice smooth figures that aren't reality. So what we can say is there's going to be fewer than collecting than there are today. The Generation X is coming up into the Social Security age very, very quickly. Very quickly. Every day is one day closer. That's how fast it's going in our, our one-day-at-a-time time machine. The Earth is our time machine moving forward one day at a time. Can't make it go faster or slower. All right, so that is fascinating. I have another subject to approach here. We had a question about baby boomers and social security in 11 years. Baby boomers today are a big part of what we're looking at in the economy. The labor force participation rate dropped during the pandemic. What is that? People between the ages of uh, about 18 and up into the early 60s. And some of that was people staying at home to take care of kids. Some of that was early retirement. What we're seeing right now, and, and if you're aware of this, those of you that aren't, I'm a make, making you aware of this. The unemployment rate went up a little bit over the last couple of months, just a tiny bit. But at the same time that we had more people hired. So how did the, and the net number of people hired went up, but the unemployment rate went up at the same time. What is that? Well, that has to do with labor force participation. People that weren't working are coming back to work, that were working pre-pandemic are coming back into the workforce. So there's more people available to do jobs entering the workforce at the same time that more people are being hired. So in the demographics of that, that's a lot of the women that were taking a lot longer to come back to work. And you can give all kinds of social commentary or whatever on this for for the context of today women are still more often the caregivers of children than men are uh, and that's not universal it's not all the time this is on average but it's it is a piece of of the demographic issues that are going on now is that we're getting women coming back into the workforce again at a higher rate than men, where at the beginning of the recovery, men came back into the workforce at a higher rate than women. We can see that happen and we can start to understand why it's happening. And at the same time, some of the people that left the workforce are not coming back. These are early retirees or just retirees in the baby boomer market. So we still have a labor participation rate that's a couple of percentage points below what it was pre-pandemic. This is part of what is causing the, the, the number of people still being hired, our unemployment rate not going up, is because some people have left permanently. They're on their retirement now. They have their pensions coming in. They have their 401ks either converted to IRAs or just taking their income from one or the other. Then add on top of that another weird thing. And this is um, the Guardian in, uh, in uh, the UK has put this out, but the US Bureau of Labor Statistics is where they're getting their numbers. About 1.5 million Americans worked, missed work because of sickness in December. That's a big deal. That's far, far higher than it was pre-pandemic. Um, about one out of five people who got COVID 
are showing long COVID symptoms. That's 20% of the people that got it. And we have up at the $180 million million people mark for who has gotten it. It's a big chunk of our population. About 7% of adult Americans have long COVID, it says in in June of 2022. Uh, The CDC is saying one in five of the people that got it. So 20% of the people that got it or 7% of the adult Americans have long COVID. I do. It's not fun. It's weird. Uh, I easily get sick where I didn't easily get sick before. Has that imp- has that affected my production? Yeah. Has it affected the production of the United States? Yes. What's am- amazing out of this is that our productivity is still going up. And I feel like my productivity has gone up even with long COVID because we're using better tools, uh, better use of our time, more efficient ways of doing things. These are all things that are headwinds and yet all of the things, all of these negative things that I've spent almost two hours talking to you about, our economy is still growing. We're still looking at possibly a 2% annualized growth rate of the GDP for the first quarter. We're seeing hiring continue at a rapid rate. We're seeing income still going up. All of this comes as very confusing. Why is it confusing? Well, because things are really in a different set of variables than we've seen before. The behavior is not different than what we've seen before. Underneath it all, each of these variables is different. So our the number of people calling in sick is way above what it was four years ago. Now, some people will say, well, that's just because people are lazy today. No, it's not. This is across the board, executives as well as hourly employees. Are we all suddenly lazy when we're more productive than we were four years ago? Our productivity is up. That implies that we're not lazy, but our sicking, our getting sick and calling in sick is way up. So there's some other issues involved here. Uh, consumer spending growth is down a little bit. It's still growth. We're still spending more than we were before. These are, these are all fascinating pieces. The growth is slowing down a bit, and that makes sense. Interest rates are going up. It's harder to get cheap money to buy stuff with. So you actually have to dip into savings to do it, unless you're making enough money to, to pay for it all. So what we're seeing across the board is really confusing to a lot of economists because it's not, there's not, you know, if, if you prefer one measurement uh, as an indicator for a recession and you say this has worked so consistently, if you don't look at all of the variables, then you don't know. And this comes to a point, Nouriel Rubini, Dr. Doom is out there and he you know, recommend you look up some of the stories. He's talking about how the banking collapse could happen. We could have this massive banking collapse. It's true, we could, but it's true all the time. We could always have a massive banking collapse. And I covered this last week. There's no bank on the planet, no matter how healthy it is, that could sur- survive a 30% of its customers leaving it, a run on the bank. That's how banks work. You're there. They're based in trust so that you believe that the money will be there when you need it. But if everybody leaves at once, the bank will fail. It has to. Otherwise, it won't be profitable day to day and it would go out of business for other reasons. So at any given time, a banking collapse could be a day away. But that's not the reality of how we go about our business. The Federal Reserve has dumped a whole bunch of money in the last few weeks into, into the banking world. Over four 
$1,200 billion from the Federal Reserve went to buy up treasury securities and longer-term maturities from the people at the bank level. How do I know this? Well, number one, the, the Federal Reserve Board posts its balance sheet. We can see that easily in the graph. The graph goes, boom, jumps way up, $400 billion. Number two, the amount of money that was pushed into the banking world so that they have liquid on reserves. If you start looking at bank balance sheets, suddenly their ba balance sheets look better. Well, that's what the Federal Reserve is supposed to do. So they've gone in, they pushed a bunch of money out to the banks and bought up their securities that may not be mature maturing for quite a while so that they have liquid reserves available for withdrawals. Did that solve the banking crisis? Well, if I said yes universally, that ignores the fact that all it takes is the whim of confidence. Your Twitter exists, Facebook exists, and if everybody starts posting about a run on the bank for any bank, that bank could disappear. If we convince the public, and the public is convinced, that bank is, banking is safe again, then we don't have the runs. Ha, huh, sounds like I made a, a little joke there. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is that the banking system is safer today than it was prior to the failure of those major banks that we saw, which is good news. So there's good news coming. We're growing. The banking system is, is safer today than it was prior to SVB collapsing. Uh, SVB collapsing has improved the safety of the banks. I like that. Uh, that's the way it's supposed to work. And I'm about out of time for the week. I, man, I've talked about a lot of negative stuff. That means my listenership should be way up. Um, I'm really optimistic about the long-term future, and I want you guys to understand that, that all of the trends that I'm seeing in technology and so on are positive. The shorter-term headwinds are negative, and we're about out of time. This is the Personal Wealth Coach with Jeff and Jake McClure. Uh, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we do make uh, other statements than really bad puns about songs. Uh, we are uh, a, a finance program as you would probably guess from the personal wealth coach being our title. The personal wealth coach is not just the title of the program. It's also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. All right. Well, does that mean that the SEC likes us? What would you say to that, sir? I would say that the SEC is a professionally dislikes almost everyone. Right. That is no implication of the SEC's approval just because we're registered with them. Why is the radio program and the firm named the same thing because we have to give this disclosure no matter what it is and it's less disclosurable it takes less time to do if it's just the same name so we've been doing this program here uh on this in, on this station 1400 a.m in temple since 1996 we've been doing this a long time and we haven't been paid for it ever uh we also Man. have not ever paid for it so we've been doing this a long, long time, and the whole idea is education. We do advertise as a firm for on the studio, uh, on the channel, for this radio program. We don't actually advertise for our firm. We're advertising for the radio program. So what we're saying is that this is educational, and we do occasionally get business from it, but our purpose here is truly education. That being said, it's not advice. Advice would be if I knew who you were, if the other bald guy, Jeff, knew who you were, and we were able to have a private conversation with you 
about things in your best interest versus broadcasting to everyone. So we're going to be talking about education, which is why we do the program to begin with. So those two disclosures are really one. And having said that, do you deem to tell us another disclosure? Yes. The information we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he really can't get through the week without that. I think Uh, if you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give individually, uh, individually crafted and customized advice based on what people are trying to achieve. That's generally portfolio management and portfolio management. And that's generally for people with higher net worths, but we make exceptions occasionally. Um, And so you can contact us locally voicemail available during the weekend, but actual real live people know phone tree during the week at 254-947-1111. You can reach that line tool free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. And I think it's important to note that we're an independent fiduciary firm. We don't work for a corporation. We only work for our clients. Right. Exactly. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There's a contact form. You can use emails, Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. There are uh, recordings of the radio program going back years, newsletters going back decades, uh, and you can find us wherever podcasts are given. Um, thank you very much for listening on a nice Saturday morning. And until next week, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach. <laughs>